0: And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through verse 30. So Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying... We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine bearer, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are labor. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and for its truth. We know it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And so we pray, Father, as we come to this passage this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear the truth that is here. And that as your Spirit goes forth with your word, we pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil which will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Well,
0: it's easy to look around today and see all that's going on in the world. And you come to the conclusion that we are in a downward spiral headed for destruction. There's the disasters, the, the pestilence, the persecution, the rebellion against God, His Word, and even His design and how and, and what He has created. Then there's the crime, the, the greed, the idolatry, the corruption, the immorality, the pride, the selfishness. And we, of course we could go on and on. We may even conclude that this is surely the worst of times, and perhaps it is. But in many ways, the world in which we live isn't any more sinful than in times past. Yes, of course, there are more people in the world, so there are more sinners in the world. And our advances in technology and civilization have really opened new doors for sin to manifest itself. But when you look at the sin itself, it's all just the same. So instead of being discouraged, and losing hope, we ought to then remain faithful to the task that we have been called to do. To proclaim the gospel and be witnesses, calling this generation in which we live to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Just as our forefathers did in generations past, and even as Jesus does in this passage before us this morning. Now up to this point, and... Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has been reflecting on the life and the ministry of John the Baptist and its, really its connection to his own ministry. <coughs> Remember that John was uh, discouraged. He was struggling with uh, doubts as he sat in prison, uh, likely knowing that his own death was, uh, was soon to come. And so Jesus sent words of encouragement to John to, uh, to reassure him that his ministry of preparing the way of the Messiah wasn't in vain. And Jesus then took the opportunity after that to address the crowd and affirm John and his ministry as being closely tied to his own. Though they obviously took very different approaches, their message, which was founded on the, the promise of the Old Testament Scriptures, Their messages were unified around the same gospel call Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Jesus now reissues this call to those who would hear, to his and even to our own generation. He begins To what shall I liken this generation? Now, first off, it's important to note that, that Jesus isn't using uh, generation here in a narrowed sense as we often uh, use it today to speak of a specific age group, right? So he's not thinking about millennials or Gen X, Y, or Z or uh, baby boomers. No, Jesus is addressing all those alive at the time regardless of their age, the entire generation of people. The entire age. They're all on the same plane when it comes to spiritual condition. And Jesus has this message that he wants to proclaim to all of them. Because it pertains to all of them. But what's the illustration he uses to describe their condition? He begins, It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not lament. Now already we notice Jesus isn't paying them a compliment. Because of all the illustrations that he could have used for an entire generation, he says that in their understanding, in their maturity, in their attitudes, their actions, and their behaviors, they're like a bunch of whiny, unsatisfied children. They're like children playing in the marketplace, or at least that was their intent. And you have one group <coughs> who wants to play wedding, and so they they uh, sing a, uh, they play a joyful tune on the flute. But then the other children refuse to dance. And then the other group, well, they want to play funeral, and so they begin singing a sad song. But the others refuse to play the part of the mourners. And so back and forth they go not agreeing on anything, as each group is dissatisfied with the suggestions of the other. And so instead of enjoying the day of playing together, they spend the whole time arguing and complaining because they're stubborn and they're unwilling to bend. Friends, what an accurate description of our own generation, of our own day and age unsatisfied children arguing back and forth about this and that, demanding everyone else conform to what they want. It's me first and you never. There's no humility, no graciousness or forbearance, no love, not even a desire to listen or an attempt to understand a different perspective. And of course, with everyone entrenched in their own stubbornness, nothing gets accomplished. And the fickleness and the lack of satisfaction is, is also descriptive because whatever is offered is is criticized and condemned without giving due consideration. So nothing satisfies the mood or the expectation because every idea is a bad idea. But there's another characteristic that marks this generation as As Jesus now applies this example to the public reception of John and and Jesus' own ministry. And the result is nothing less than unbelief and a refusal to acknowledge the truth regardless of how it's packaged. Verse 18 19, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, though John and Jesus declared the same message, well, their ministries and their appearance were very different. John was an ascetic. That is, he, like many of the Old Testament prophets, he, he lived a life of, uh, marked by self-denial and the... Um, Rigors of, of self-discipline. He, he lived and ministered in the wilderness. His clothing was rough and uncomfortable. And his diet of locusts and wild honey wasn't exactly fine dining. And of course we know that he and his disciples uh, made regular use of the practice of, of fasting. And though many people were drawn to John, and <clears throat> they went to great lengths to go out to him in the wilderness, of course there were many others who rejected him and his message, and apparently some even declaring that he has a demon. And so basically they thought that John was just this wild, crazed lunatic out in the wilderness, and and they went out just to be entertained by him. Well, then Jesus comes along. Again, with the same message, but compared to John, Jesus seems like a glutton and a drunkard. Because he not only eats and drinks as anyone else would, but of course the particular crowd that he uh, dines with, the tax collectors and sinners, well, that doesn't improve his image. And so again, the critics aren't satisfied as they find fault with Jesus' apparent indulgence and lack of discipline. You see, John was too rigid, and, and Jesus seemed to live too loosely. And so both, along with their unified message, were rejected by the majority of the people and so these children and the generation or kind of person that they represent would then look foolish right? they're criticizing and finding fault with everything and Jesus' point here is that the hardness of their hearts is demonstrated by such foolishness as they reject the truth of the gospel in any way that it comes to them Well, the same is true for our own generation. No matter how the truth is packaged or revealed, their hearts are bent on not believing it. And instead, they quickly uh, turn and and exchange the truth for a lie. And the result is often not only hypocritical, but oftentimes also absurdly foolish. Like spending all this time looking for the smallest living organism out on some uninhabitable planet out in the solar system, and yet denying life in the human womb. Or claiming to preach tolerance and acceptance of of everything except the truth which they can't tolerate or accept. It's truly ridiculous. But that's the unbelief of our generation, even as it was the unbelief of Jesus' generation. But, of course, not everyone rejected the gospel. We see in verse 19, Jesus concludes, "...but wisdom is justified by her children." Now, the wisdom is, of course, God's wisdom, and the children are His children, that is, those who believe in Christ for salvation. See, they're not the self-righteous ones that are found arguing in the streets about what game to play, But there are those who listen and obey the call of the gospel, turning and repenting of their sins, seeking God's forgiveness. The transformation of their lives is the evidence that reveals the truth of God's wisdom in sending John to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And so ultimately God and John and Jesus and the gospel that they proclaimed and even those who believe their words and even us who believe today We will prove right the truth of God to all those who disregard it and reject it. But for those who don't believe now in this life, when that time comes, the time of God's wisdom being justified or revealed true before all, well then it will be too late. And so continuing on this thought, Jesus issues a great warning, or as Matthew notes for us in verse 20, He began to rebuke whole cities because of this rampant unbelief. And the reason given for this rebuke is that though Jesus did most of His mighty works in their midst, they didn't repent. Now consider all the miracles that we know that Jesus has done. Right, healing lepers, right, making them whole and free from a disease for which there was no known cure. And he cast out numerous demons and evil spirits. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the lame to walk. Amen. And he also taught with authority, such as no scribe or teacher of the time possessed. He brought true, pre- true peace and restoration He brought forgiveness to people's broken lives. It was obvious that Jesus ministered in the power of God. And yet many people, seeing these things, they didn't repent. And we know that there were crowds, huge crowds, that always followed Jesus everywhere. They saw these things firsthand. And many of them didn't repent. They didn't turn away from their sin, and they didn't seek God's forgiveness. They were intrigued, yes, by the miracles. They were entertained by them. But they didn't believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the Son of God. No matter what sign or miracle Jesus would do, they just wouldn't believe. And for this unbelief, and for the lack of repentance... Jesus now rebukes them. And the rebuke comes in the form of a woe. Now, a woe is, is a, both a curse and a warning. And it really is the complete opposite of a blessing or a beatitude. Remember the beatitudes of, of the Sermon on the Mount? They were blessings. Well, this is a woe. This is a complete opposite. Instead of be blessed, it's be warned and a curse be upon you. So by pronouncing these woes, Jesus intends to condemn their unbelief. But he also seeks to call these hard-hearted ones to repentance. Now, Chorazin and Bethsaida are cities that are singled out first. And note the severity of not only their spiritual blindness, but also the judgment that will come upon them. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, Chorazin was a city that was a few miles northwest of, of Capernaum. And though we have no uh, explicit record of Jesus performing any miracles there, we do know that he traveled extensively in and around that area around the Sea of Galilee. But then Bethsaida, on the other hand, was the original hometown of of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. And it's likely in the area of Bethsaida toward the north end of the Sea of Galilee that we had the the great miracle, the feeding of the the 5,000 that took place. As well as the healing of a young man who was born deaf and dumb stricken by that deaf and dumb spirit. So Jesus did many mighty works in these places. And they had the great privilege of hearing Jesus teach and and proclaim the gospel, and yet they didn't believe. They didn't acknowledge Jesus to be the Christ or the way of salvation that the Lord had provided. And so Jesus makes a strong contrast comparing them to the heathen cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now these Phoenician cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea were notoriously wicked cities, and they were often condemned by the Lord's prophets in the Old Testament because of their idolatry and their worship of the false god Baal. And yet Jesus says here that if given the opportunity, if these wicked cities had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, they would have surely humbled themselves. They would have humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord, and they would have repented of their sin, and they would have sought the Lord's mercy for forgiveness. This would have been shocking to the ears of Jesus' audience. See, because at the very least, they believed that as long as they were the physical descendants of Abraham, then they were okay, they were going to be justified by God on the last great day. And that it was going to be these wicked cities, these idolatrous cities of of Tyre and Sidon, that they were the ones that were going to be judged uh, righteously by God on that day. But Jesus says no, not so. In fact, it was going to be more tolerable. In the day of judgment for those of these idolatrous cities of Tyre and Sidon, than it would be for those, these Jewish cities who witnessed the miracles and the ministry of Jesus and yet didn't repent and believe in him. But then Jesus moves to Capernaum, and the rebuke here gets even more severe. Verse 23 And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum is really put in a category all its own. For all the cities of the region, See, Capernaum was in many ways the most highly privileged. It was the place where Jesus stayed most often. Essentially, it was the home base of his ministry in the region of Galilee. And he taught there in the synagogue in Capernaum on numerous occasions, and he healed many, including Peter's mother-in-law. Surely if any place in Israel was blessed by, by God at this time, it was Capernaum. Surely they would be exalted to heaven because of this great privilege. But Jesus says, no. They won't be exalted to heaven. Instead, they'll be cast down to Hades, to the place of death and destruction. But it's the comparison that Jesus now goes on to make that really is most shocking. Sodom. And its sister city Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain near the Dead Sea are noted in the throughout the scriptures as the epitome of evil and wicked cities. You read through the scriptures and from Genesis, even on through the book of Revelation, when you see the Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned, it's a it's a picture of the, just the pure wickedness and evil in the world. These cities in their pride and self-exaltation. They among many other sins gave up the natural use of their bodies and turned themselves over to homosexuality and, and other perversions so that God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and completely destroyed these cities. Leaving the whole region desolate. Sinfulness of Sodom again sets the standard of utter sinfulness and depravity throughout the Scriptures. And therefore the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God against Sodom, becomes the standard of God's righteous judgment upon the evil and wickedness of mankind. And yet Jesus utters the shocking words here. If it had been God's purpose to send Jesus to Sodom, to perform the same miracles and teach the same gospel that he proclaimed in the streets of Capernaum. Well, Sodom would have been spared God's judgment and it would have remained until that day. And the implication, of course, is that they would have turned from their evil ways and they would have repented and they would have looked to God for forgiveness. And yet because of Capernaum's unbelief, in the midst of the great privilege they were given, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the wicked residents of Sodom than it will be for those in Capernaum. Brothers and sisters, there are several ways that we can apply this truth in our own day and age. We think about, for example, in respect to to our nation and really the freedom that churches have and enjoy, at least for now, to to assemble and to worship and to proclaim the gospel unhindered, unhindered. But we also think more personally. More personally of the great privilege given to us and to our own children who are being raised in the covenant community of God's people, the church. Those who have the privilege to hear the gospel proclaimed, to hear the word of God read and sung, not only here on the Lord's Day, but also each day in family worship or devotions at home. We ought not to take such a privilege for granted. Other parents, and not even you children and young people, you're greatly blessed and you're privileged You're greatly blessed and privileged because you regularly hear the gospel. But with such great privilege comes the same heavy warning that Jesus issues here. Will it be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you? Truly, may it never be may you turn from your sin and sincerely believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this may cause some to wonder, how is this even possible? How could there be such privilege and yet there still be unbelief? How could the Jews of Jesus' day see so clearly these miracles taking place and yet still not believe? It's almost as if a a shroud Uh, has uh, covered over their eyes, keeping them from truly saying with their hearts and their minds. And as Jesus continues, we see that this is essentially what happened. As Jesus now turns to the Lord, and we presume, presume He openly prays and gives thanks to God for the great mystery of God's sovereignty, and it is perfectly good and just plan and purpose. Verse 25 and at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Now note these truths that Jesus asserts here. First, God the Father is Lord of heaven and earth. That is, As Lord, He is sovereign king and ruler over all that He has created in heaven and on earth, including mankind. And because of His sovereignty, God has the power and the authority to do with His creation as He pleases. And indeed, He is under no obligation to save anyone. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 9.18, Therefore He has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills He hardens. And then later in verse twenty one, he says, "He doesn't uh, does not have a, does not the potter have power over the clay, for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor." Indeed, God does have such power and authority over his creature, creatures, and it's God's sovereignty and election. That Jesus further uh, shows in that he says, You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now, the wise and prudent here are are those who are wise and prudent in their own eyes, Mm -hmm. filled with the arrogance and pride. These God has blinded to the truth. And yet, the truth he's revealed to babes, to the weak and to the humble. And this not because the babes were more deserving, certainly not, for we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God was pleased to bestow His grace on the lowly babes and confound the wise and the prudent. And the only reason Jesus gives for this is for so it seemed good in your sight because of God's own good pleasure his own will and purpose and with that brothers and sisters we must be content for who can argue against the creator of heaven and earth his purpose is good and right and he alone has the power and the authority to do as he pleases for his own glory and this is hard for us it's truly a great mystery but though we don't fully understand God's sovereignty or His decrees of election and reprobation, why He chooses some for life and then passes over others, we do know that this is the truth that He has revealed in His Word. And Jesus makes this very clear. And yet though there are those whose hearts have been hardened by sin, whose eyes the Lord sovereignly keeps covered, who've been uh, justly marked for condemnation from all eternity, there is still yet hope for many others. Even for those who may be spiritually blind to the truth and hard-hearted right now. For as long as they still breathe, there is still hope. There is still a way. But only one way unto salvation. And that's through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus speaking now to the disciples and the crowd. Verse 27, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Notice the claims that Jesus makes here. First, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. All truth Wisdom and knowledge, as well as the power and the authority to do the great works that he's done, have come to Jesus from the Heavenly Father. And all this is just a precursor to what will be given to him after his resurrection from the dead. When he declares in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus is here acknowledging his right As the divine Son of God to exercise the same sovereignty, the same sovereign authority as God the Father. Because they are truly one. Secondly, Jesus demonstrates the intimate relationship between He and the Father. The the disciples and many of the people knew Jesus. They didn't know Him as God does. As the beloved eternal Son of God. And though many claim to know God the Father, only Jesus truly knows Him, for Jesus is the one who was sent to reveal Him, so that those who believe might have eternal life. This leads us to the third claim that Jesus makes here. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The only way to the Father, to know the Father, to be adopted by the Father's gracious love is through Jesus. For only those to whom Jesus chooses to reveal the Father will know the Father. Jesus is again affirming his unity with the Father as he claims the same sovereign authority that he ascribed to the Father back in verse 25. And it also echoes the words of Jesus in John 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father because only Christ reveals the Father. And so our only hope for forgiveness and redemption is through Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't satisfied with simply stating the truth of the matter. Even the truth of the gospel that he's just declared. No, even though he's given a a stern warning to an unbelieving generation, he graciously extends an invitation an invitation to those in the crowd listening. To the fickle, to the unsatisfied children arguing in the marketplace. To the people of Chorazin, to the people of Bethsaida, and even to the people of Capernaum. To the entire generation of people. Even to us, and to our own generation. Jesus invites, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Those who labor are those wearied by the work and toil of this life, wearied by the daily battles with sin and temptation, and and those who are heavily burdened by the law either because they constantly try to shake off the law and yet can't, or because they vainly seek to work their way into God's favor and can't. To these, Jesus invites, come to me and I will give you rest, true everlasting rest and refreshment for your soul and eventually for your body as well. It's an invitation to trust in Him alone for salvation. To believe in Him as your Lord and Savior, as the one who paid the penalty for your sins and who freed you from eternal condemnation. Trust Him. Come to Him. Find your rest and your refuge in Him. But the invitation doesn't stop there. Jesus invites you to follow Him as His disciple, to learn from Him, to live as He lived in holiness, truth and righteousness to grow in your faith and understanding as you daily walk with Him and rely upon His grace, His strength, and the work of redemption that He secured for you. He's no harsh taskmaster. He's gentle and lowly in heart. He's gracious, merciful, and forgiving. And His yoke is easy and light. It, it won't condemn you. It won't crush you. It won't hurt you. Because He will sustain you. By his abounding grace. This beloved of God. Is the call to you. And to this generation in which we live. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. Believe on him. And you will not be disappointed. Not now in this life. And most certainly not on the last great day. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth of your holy word. We thank you for the challenge that we've been reminded of and the warning, just the, the great privilege that we have that each one in this room has to hear the gospel proclaimed each and every week and even throughout the week as we attend to your word. May we not take that privilege for granted but may we truly repent of our sins and believe in you trusting in you and even resting in you as you have so invited us Father we just praise you and thank you for your blessing in this way we pray that you would help even this congregation of your people to be a true beacon of light and and hope in this community they would be faithful in proclaiming this gospel to this generation. Because we know, Lord, that this generation is greatly troubled and is truly headed for destruction. But We pray, Lord, that you would lead them to those who are ready to hear, who have those ears to hear, and that many would come to faith through their witness. Drawing them to Yourself. Building up Your church. Building up Your kingdom. As they seek to serve You and glorify You in all things. So Father, we pray now for Your blessing upon these things and upon Your Word. and May Your Spirit truly apply these truths to our own hearts. Drawing us all closer to Yourself. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please uh, turn now on your psalters to respond to this by singing together from Psalm 34. The conclusion of Psalm 34, we'll sing Psalm 34, Selection C. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, stand to sing Psalm 34, Selection C.
1: Daughters come give ear and learn from me the Lord to fear, who's seeking good long life desires, or who to many days aspires. From me will make your tongue refrain, from speaking lies, your lips restrain. From every wicked way depart, to good seek peace with all your heart. The Lord on just man, keeps his eyes, his ears are open to their cries. The Lord on Though righteous men great troubles see, the Lord from all will set them free, and all his bonds he'll keep secure, no broken ones will he endure, but evil slaves or wicked men, those hating just men are condemned. The Lord redeems those serving Him. Non-trusting Him will He condemn.
0: Receive now, blessing the Lord, to the benediction. We'll have the doxology of 72C, verses 11 and 12. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
1: Amen. May God be blessed, The Lord, alone. Blessed be the God of Israel. Their deeds excel, his works all of their deeds excel, and may his name of glorious worth receive his praise eternally, and may his glory fill the earth. Amen.
0: stuff there at the end. Oh, that's all right.